Are you an accredited investor looking for a new opportunity to generate passive income and build the retirement of your dreams? Then elevate your investment game with Viking Capital, where wealth meets wisdom. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting out, Viking Capital can help guide you towards financial freedom through passive real estate investing. With strong and transparent underwriting, Viking identifies low-risk opportunities with the goal of preserving investor capital and maximizing long-term growth potential. And their accessible and responsive investor relations team will help you understand how each investment will impact your unique financial goals. With $800 million in assets acquired, more than $230 million in equity raised, and more than 5,000 units under management, Viking Capital is your path to early retirement. To learn about Viking Capital's latest investment opportunity, which is available for you right now, visit go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best. That's go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best to get started today. Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHerCon is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, Promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. You do have to read and know all the lingo and get to meet people. And over time, that burden of knowledge becomes lower, yes. But if you don't put in the initial work, you're really doing yourself a disfavor. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, Best Ever listeners. Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Ash Patel, and I'm with today's guest, Andrew Rosenberg. Andrew is joining us from Honolulu, Hawaii. He is a passive investor who works full-time as a business owner. Andrew also invests in multifamily, office, farmland, and ATM syndications. Andrew, thank you for joining us, and how are you today? Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much for having me, Ash. Andrew, it's our pleasure. Before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little more about your background and what you're focused on now? Oh, okay. I actually have an accounting background academically. And uh, I've been investing for a very long time. At 13, I bought my first stock. It was a gift from relatives. They pooled their money together. And the condition to the gift was you have to buy a stock because they believe very strongly in education. And they believe you can read all you want, but unless you got money behind it, you're not going to really follow and learn. 
So when I bought my first stock, it was Jam Smuckers, the jam maker and coffee maker. And it went from 60 to 80 and I was hooked. So I loved investments all the way through being 13 years old to graduating college. Worked temporarily in corporate finance and corporate is just so not for me. Came back home and worked in the family business, which had nothing to do with my prior professional or academic teachings, but it was great because it's entrepreneurship. You do everything when you're the entrepreneur. I was lucky to work with my father who had started the business. You know, over the years, we realizing, geez, you know, whatever excess money we make, sorry, it's my dog, we better reinvest it because you just never know with a business. Industries change or markets change. So real estate was the next best thing. So we got into real estate and started doing single families and built up a respectable portfolio, but you really can't scale them. They start becoming a pain and realize I got to find a better way to do this. And I met Lane Kawaoka. He was a syndicator and we started just doing a little bit of his deals and realized, wait, this is really what I got to be doing. So we're pruning down the single families and any new money would go to multifamily syndications. All right. So you started out investing in stocks. What would have happened if that stock went down instead of up? I don't know. That's a good question. No one's ever asked me that before. But yeah, that's an interesting question. I guess I'm lucky that it went up the first time. Okay. So let's take the past couple cycles. You've invested in the stock market. You've seen the ups and downs. At what point did you start investing in single family houses? What year uh, was this that? Would, this would be about 2010, 2012. So post GFC. Okay. So you've seen cycles in the stock market. You have not really seen cycles in the real estate market yet. Well, I remember the GFC pretty well. GFC is the great... Sorry, the global financial crisis. Oh, okay, okay. There wasn't an asset that didn't get affected by the GFC. You saw in your own neighborhood, if you're a homeowner, you saw prices get rocked. If you didn't live under a rock, you saw it in every newspaper headline. How did you weather the stock market cycles? Do you just hold or do you try to time the market? I've never tried to time the market. It was always whatever was in there was stuff that can sit. So I never stretched the liquidity. You always have your six months of reserves for living expenses. But anything beyond that, if it goes up, it goes up. If it goes down, it goes down. It's supposed to be long horizon money. And do you view real estate the same way? Oh, even more so, especially because of the tax benefits. And as long as you're cash flowing, there's really nothing to fear. Prices go up, prices go down. Nothing's going to change my life, really. Andrew, let me play devil's advocate for a second now. Stock market timing is a little bit difficult because it can move very quickly. It can be very volatile and it's very difficult to time. With the current state of the economy, we know the Fed is increasing rates. We know there's not as many buyers as there was six months ago. And we can almost see the writing on the wall. Why not sell some of the assets and go back If the 2010 prices come back to the market, why not try to buy low again? I'm humble enough not to think I can time the market one. And to be honest, I enjoy those rent checks coming in. I enjoy the depreciation. And the whole point for me for investing is to have the money growing and run my day job. Where I make money is my day job. That's my biggest source of making money. The real estate, stocks, bonds, That's all nice, and it's to obviously outpace inflation or 
at a minimum the bank account, but I've never really looked at it as something I'd want to time. If there's a good deal, it's always a good time to buy a good deal. For me, it just means any new investments, the underwriting has to be harder, basically. The deal has to be even more of a slam dunk right now. You're transitioning from your own single families into other people's syndications. What are things that you look for when you evaluate somebody's syndication? I know it's the canned answer because everybody always says that it's the team. But for me, I'm not trying to swing the home run. So I really am looking for consistent players that know how to mitigate risk and have a substantial deal flow. So I'm biased and I know I'm biased towards experienced operators that have done a number of deals, have gone full cycle. And the kind of guys that when you ask them the nitty gritty questions, they don't get flustered. They have the answers. Obviously, you don't ask the list of 21 or 22 standard questions to ask a syndicator. You don't ask them every single one. You ask them three or four. And as long as you get good answers on those and the team is solid, you like the market, then it's okay to ask. There's so many good operators. That's the other thing. There's only so much money. There's a lot of good operators out there. All right. So there's a lot of good operators. How do you sift through them and pick the right one? For me, the big kicker right now, and I look at a good number of presentations, the one that gets me, frankly, upset is if I've watched the webinar or you sent me the pitch deck of PowerPoint, if you don't mention the debt structure, I'm probably out. That's just going to get me pissed off, I'll be honest. If it's someone I know or the capital raiser was someone I know, then I'll say, okay, here's the list of questions and things you guys didn't really address in the presentation. And depending on how those are answered, maybe I would invest then. I've had it told to me that basically for a long time, because the market was so hot, all a syndicator really had to do was pitch a hot city like Houston, Phoenix, Dallas, Miami, you name it throw a bunch of IRRs and cash on cashes and a bunch of big returns, they could get a lot of money. They didn't need to go over asset management. They didn't need to go over who's going to be the property manager. Are they a good fit? They didn't have to go over, well, what is the value? They just threw out the word value at and investor money would follow. They didn't have, how did you come up with these comps? The little nitty gritty questions. They've been through a few years where show up some really pretty drone footage and a couple pretty PowerPoint slides with who the employers are in the area, promise 19% IRR and checks would flood in. So that doesn't really work for me. You mentioned you want in-depth knowledge on the debt structure. Explain that to me, please. Oh, okay. Well, as you mentioned yourself, we're going into recession because we won't get into that, such an incompetently managed Federal Reserve. We know interest rates are volatile. I'm not going to say they're going up. I'm not going to say they're going down, but we've never had a period in a while for such uncertainty. Uncertainty is a real risk. It's something to be calculated for. And again, I'm not the home run hitter. I just want a good team, knows what they're doing, dot all the I's, cross all the T's. I believe if I have those guys and I have a portfolio of those people, I'm going to make money. Whether it's 15%, I don't care about that. I just want to make money. I'm going to make a lot more money than I did in single family, make a lot more money consistently than the stock market and way more than the bank account. So for me right now, the only new investments that I'm going to consider are going to have one of three things. It's either going to have fixed rate debt, it's going to have a rate cap, or it's going to be where you assumed the latter portion of somebody's 10-year fixed loan. So one deal that I did invest in, 
they took the last seven years of a fixed 4.35% loan. And in that presentation, the very first slide in their presentation was about the debt structure. And their point, which I liked, was investors look at a lot, a lot of presentations. And it's very formulated, the same pattern. Everyone uses the same template, essentially. And he was saying, look, what separates my deal from everybody else? One of the big factors, not the only, but one of the big factors was the debt. Not very common that you see a deal as an investor with seven years of fixed rates. So he's got seven years to get the property up to shape. So all those repairs, all the tenant kickouts, create the new sign, build the pool, seal the driveway. Even if we get into bad times, it gives them seven years to get it fixed. Most deals we're trying to get out in three to five years. So that gave me a little higher margin of error. Similarly, there was a construction deal we did where they're buying the hotel. They're going to convert it to residential. They had a fixed loan debt. It was from a small local bank, and it's because they have a relationship. These guys have done this before. And because they believe so strongly in the deal, it's a recourse debt. Recourse being, I know you know, but for the audience, the debt goes to them personally. It's not just attached to the property. So you're looking at the deal, and there's lots of good things about the deal. But when you realize the general partners have very substantial amounts of capital in the deal, their little local bank believed in them because they've done it before, and the debt's fixed, it's a higher degree of certainty in that project than other ones that I look at that have variable rates. So that just wouldn't work for me. And then the last deal that we did recently was a deal that's very, very, very attractive on the purchase price. So they bought the rate cap. They could, it could still cash flow well, even with the rate cap. So for me, there's all these deals out there, all these great operators. I really just need to not have interest rate volatility as a risk. I already have operational risk or I have jurisdictional risk or the federal government coming up with another eviction moratorium. I have all these risks out there. If we can strip out the interest rate risk as much as possible, now we can play. Stripping out that risk, is that five years typically? Yeah. or do you- Five years is enough. Okay. Even the seven-year one was nice because this operator's done it before. He's never needed seven years. But I kind of liked his point of We've never faced this much uncertainty. Who, who knows what the federal government will do in the next five years? I don't know. Who knows what the economy is going to be like? I really like the idea that, God forbid, we got to extend out this value-add project a little longer and still cash flow. I'm okay. Send me my distribution checks. I can wait for the refinance or I can wait to sell. What I don't want to get is a phone call saying, hey, Andy, the loan's coming up and banks aren't making loans again like during the GFC. You remember the GFC. There was people calling up banks with high 700 credit scores saying, nope, no loan for you. You're like, what are you talking about? Andrew, how important are distributions and are you okay with delayed distributions? Do you want your monthly check? Not really, to be honest. The distributions are nice and I like it. Everyone likes to check on their phone or, or go on their computer and see it flowing into your bank account. Where you make the money is the exit whether it's the refinance or the sale, that's really where your money is going to be made. The one thing I like about the distribution is that it it keeps the operator on their toes a little bit because there's always this pressure of, we got to cash flow, we got to pay our investors. So it encourages them to cut costs or find positive ways to come up with new revenue streams, whether it's trash pickup, changing the internet contract or pet fees, that kind of thing. 
I like it in the sense that it, it keeps the operator on their toes. But I've invested in land development deals. You're not going to get a distribution on land development. I'm invested in farmland, like you say. That one, I'm probably not seeing any distribution until sale. It just depends where in the portfolio you are. If the pitch was, this is a yield play, then yeah, you better be making your distribution payments. But if we're doing like heavy value add lift, yeah, I'm not expecting distributions for a while. So my portfolio has different elements of stable, boring, easy, and more risky projects. We'll get back to the show with the first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. When it comes to scaling your real estate business, is lack of capital holding you back? Raising private capital on demand can be a major challenge, but you can get the knowledge and tools you need to succeed when you attend Dana Cornell's three-hour Raise Capital Masterclass live. After starting out with no capital or relationships, Dana has raised over $2 billion, that's with a B, billion dollars twice in the last 20 years, and he has made it his mission to share the best of what he's learned with business owners and real estate investors like you. You can learn more at danacornell.com forward slash best ever. Dana's Raise Capital Masterclass allows you to immediately unlock and raise capital on demand, drastically increasing your business's growth. If you're ready to take your business to the next level, go to danacornell.com forward slash best ever and enroll today. And right now, best ever listeners, you can enroll for over $500 off. Go to danacornell.com forward slash best ever. I'd like to introduce you to my good friends over at PassiveInvesting.com, a private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. PassiveInvesting.com makes it easy for you to start investing in real estate. They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities with private accredited investor funds. They also have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to local fix and flippers across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. With a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and controlling over $250 million in equity, they know how to secure the best deals and how to avoid the red flags. If you are interested in learning more, please reach out directly to PassiveInvesting.com and request the free Passive investor guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. You're the ideal versatile investor because there's some investors that literally want a monthly distribution. Nothing less will suffice. And others that like me, monthly distribution for me is just an accounting headache. I'd rather just get the money at the end, right? And then when you're looking at syndicators, do you evaluate their exit strategy, their exit cap rate, how much they're banking on the property appreciating? Yeah, that's a tough one. You know, obviously anybody who has an exit cap rate lower than their entry cap rate is immediately disqualified and frankly has to leave the Rolodex, Yeah, which I've actually seen. I've seen that too. I was baffled. Again, I'd rather you not advertise these crazy high IRRs. I'd rather you tell me boring, middling IRRs and tell me, Andy, and show me really conservative. Like we put the exit cap rate a full hundred basis points higher than our entry. We've got a big reserve and we're still making this IRR that's very acceptable. Plus we didn't bake in these numbers for the optionality, the upside of whether it's trash pickup, storage units, valet parking or reserve parking. I know you, we love optionality. Give me ideas of there's extra ways we're going to make money, but don't build those things into the number that says whether or not we hit our debt service coverage ratio. 
It's really got to be just the meat, the nitty gritty that meets those numbers. So yeah, promise me 12% even and show me how this thing is like shooting fish in a barrel and that will probably get higher returns, but you don't need to promise me crazy stuff. I'd rather you just tell me the real deal and I'm in. I agree with you. And in addition to that, just because you've had historic rent increases, don't bank on that for the future. <laughs> That's not happening. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, we both know if you look up Google and you type in U.S. rent growth and you skim a couple of charts, there's been odd years, but 3% is the historical norm. And there's obviously dips and valleys of that 3%. But yeah, the double-digit rent growth is not something to be banking on. I also wonder, some of the newer operators... When they say, hey, we bought it for this, and 18 months later, we sold it for that, it's because we did this great value add. You're wondering, no, not really. The market was really hot. I don't know. It's like painting you know, lipstick on a pig. The, the new painting and floors you did might not have had anything to do with the value. You might have been able to sell it and make money 18 months because you bought it cheap, it went up high, and you sold. I don't know that your value add really worked. And there's investors now willing to buy at a much lower cap. Maybe not today, but six months ago. Oh, no, even now, even now, I'm seeing deals in Dallas that the cap rate is really creeping low in Dallas, Houston. I think Phoenix is coming back to reality a little bit, but yeah, those are the deals that maybe you have to pass. I've passed on deals that I look at and I'm thinking they're probably going to make a lot of money, but if if I'm not going to sleep good at night, it's not worth it to me. There's so many deals out there. There's so many operators. I don't need to hit the home run. I'm not looking to hit it big or buy a yacht in the next five years. So I'm okay with nice and boring. Yeah. And I've seen people purchase at a two and a half cap, fully renovated class A in Phoenix. So there's no more value add other than rent growth. Well, there is the greater fool theory. Yeah. Um, Makes you wonder how much lower you can go though, right? Yeah. I guess the nice thing is that REITs and insurance companies and some of the big institutional players or some of the sovereign players, the international money, sometimes do come into big markets and they got to find a home for their cash. And returns aren't always what they're looking for. As you you can imagine, there are international investors that are going to buy large properties because they're going to lose less money with their money parked in America than possibly in their local currency in the emerging markets. Very good point. Andrew, you've invested in office, farmland, and ATM syndications. Why? (laughs) Well, we both knew that when inflation was rearing its ugly head and we were hearing all this nonsense from the Fed, it's going to be transitory. We don't see it coming. It's peaked. The whole story, I won't go into it. It's just been absurd. We knew a while ago inflation was coming. You can't print that much money and not expect a problem. You can't shut an economy down and then turn the light switch back on. And then I would say, obviously, we didn't predict a war in Ukraine and all these other issues. So for me, farmland has always been a great inflation hedge. If you look up the Weimar Republic of Germany post-World War, the only people that were really making a lot of money were the farmers. Is this U.S. farmland that you invested in? U.S. farmland. The Federal Reserve, they can't print more potatoes. They can't print more dirt. They can't print farmland. So that was one that I was willing to do. And Again, it's kind of funny. People think I'm a little crazy, but it's not any different than multifamily. And they look at me kind of weird. The farmland I'm in is a value-add play. They're converting it to organic. The returns on your land or your crops, if they're certified organic, is a lot higher than traditional farming. Now, there's that time in between. It takes a while to 
become an organic farm. So the people I invest with, that's what they're doing. So that's why they would seek people like us to invest in them. So we give them enough money so it's tied over that period to convert the farm to organic. What is the anticipated IRR on that? I would say maybe 12 to 15, more realistically 12. And I'm okay with 12. And if there's upside and the war in Ukraine never ends or farmland prices skyrocket, that'd be lovely, but I'm okay with that. Farmland is the least correlated to the stock market or other assets. It doesn't correlate well to other things. So I don't look at it as a particular investment. It's part of an overall portfolio. So when you're putting in the portfolio, it's for diversification purposes. Similarly with the ATM, the ATM is very obvious. It's a seven-year plan. At the end of the seven years, there's almost no value in the ATM. So the depreciation on that ATM is incredibly high. So this is one where if you like a monthly cash flow coming in, this is the one for you because the returns are very, very high. Plus, they're very, very tax-friendly because the depreciation is insane. Instead of single family being 27 and a half years, you're dividing by almost seven years. The depreciation is very accelerated. That was just to put ballast to the portfolio. When you're discussing investments with your spouse, they like to see money coming in. It's a good source of funds. And then office, it's kind of like what we discussed earlier. Can we pause on the ATM for a second? Yeah. I know very little about this other than ATMs have a lifespan of about 10 years. Is that right? Yeah. The guys I'm invested in with, we're planning on scrapping them in seven and they're not having much residual value. But yeah, seven to 10 years is about right. I think they wanted to do it in seven because I'm I'm assuming that years eight, nine, 10, you might have to do repairs. They just want to kill the fun and buy new ATMs at that point. They don't want to deal with repairs is what I'm assuming. What does an ATM cost? Do you know? I remember when I saw the presentation, (laughs) of course, I mean, these guys are buying thousands of these as a portfolio across the country. And what's the return to you on that? We'll see. The performance is hope, and I don't like hopium, but it'll probably be closer to the 19%. Because, yeah, you're taking on risk. They, They have to offer more to get investors to come in because people are afraid the world's going cashless. So I don't see it as fast as other people, so I'm willing to do it. I know quite a few real estate investors have side money in the ATM just to have a little bit of cash flow coming in, but I don't know anybody that's going to put substantial money in or the bulk of a portfolio in it. It's a nice little extra that goes into a portfolio just to bring in a lot of cash flow. And there's no depreciation recapture on this, right? Because the asset's essentially useless. Yeah, the asset's essentially junk. I want to say at the end of the seven years, it's worth $200 or scrap. It's not really worth anything. And you cannot 1031 your investment. That's a good question. I should ask them that. They never mentioned it in the presentation, so I would think not. We're already getting such tremendous tax benefits on this one because we're getting bonus depreciation on top of it. So Yeah, so that's great. It's a great tax play, and whatever income you get should be tax-free for the most part. Yeah, it's virtually tax-free. All right. So for me, it's a nice addition to a portfolio. And then the office investment. Tell me yes. about that, please. Office was a stretch for me. You can imagine most people... You read the, the headlines, you would get scared, right? Then, Apocalypse, you know, yeah. Yeah, right. then you hear Warren Buffett's voice preaching in your handy. Be fearful when others are greedy. Be greedy when others are fearful. And you think, okay, maybe I should listen to this presentation. 
actually for me was funny was an investor who's famous in a totally different realm, natural resources, Rick Rule. You know, he talks quite a bit about the same concept of where you really make your money is when no one wants to touch something, if you've got the cojones. So I, I better watch the presentation. It's a group out of Canada, and they're the biggest player all across the Midwest. They're basically an institutional size organization, but they treat it as a co-investing group because it's a family office. So there's a lot of benefits to them. They keep their costs down. They're not interested in bonuses or salaries or anything. They're invested with you, really, with their money. And their mentality is entirely different from anybody you'll ever meet. They actually specifically say to you when you meet them over Zoom, they want your kids to still be receiving distributions. That's the whole they're looking at is indefinite. They want to buy an office building at 35% of replacement value, send you your 6% distribution check, refinance it multiple times probably over the years, and they would like you to pass on and your kid to receive it and they still own the property. It's a very different business model. They're very tough about who they let in because they really don't want people that are going to call up scared six months later. But yeah, for me, I was willing to do that. When you know enough about this group, that how they invest in their track record, there was a portion of my portfolio that said, I don't want to keep constantly every five years having to find a new deal or find a new vendor. It would be nice just to collect my quarterly distribution check. And they bought their property so low that I sleep fine at night. Yeah, I love office, especially suburban office or office that you can find for pennies on the dollar. Andrew, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? This is really specific towards LPs and syndications. You're obviously teaching is really to ask more questions. I've met a lot of investors and when I ask them why they picked an investment, a lot of it is a leap of faith. It's uh, the guy seems to know what he's doing on a podcast or why did you pick this one over this one if these were the two you're looking at and one had a better website? I've heard a lot of, I wouldn't say bad answers, but answers that in a bull market, everybody looks fine. When things get tough, the wheat is going to be separated from the chaff. I think investors spend a lot more time buying a toaster oven than they do picking investments. That's kind of obviously not a, a good thing. So I always tell people it's not really passive. There's no such thing as passive. You really do have to review the deal. You do have to do networking. You do have to read and know all the lingo and get to meet people. And over time, the, that burden of knowledge becomes lower, yes. But if you don't put in the initial work, you're really doing yourself a disfavor. This isn't like picking mutual funds. You can't just willy-nilly read a U.S. news report, look for a top 10 mutual fund list, and just any mini miny mo, I'll take that mutual fund. There is a little more going on here. Great advice and very true. Andrew, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Sure, let's go for it. All right, what's the best ever book you recently read? I guess we reread with my son, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, because that's a classic. Andrew, what's the best ever way you like to give back? I still think time is the most sincere give back. And my wife, more than me, she's really the ringleader of that. So we, we've done the community cleanups, or you know, there's a community garden nearby our house where the volunteers will come and work some of the plants or help with hauling dirt or rocks or whatever it is or pulling weeds to me still that the best thing is giving your time money's good too but when we take our son the lesson that really will stick out is cutting a check and showing your son you 
cut a check for a charity. It's a little different than sweat all over your brow and your hands are dirty. You've been you know, gardening all morning. But that to me is a little more meaningful. Andrew, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? Sure. I'm an easy one to find on LinkedIn. Obsessively, compulsively, probably post a little too much on LinkedIn. And then I'm easy to reach. My email address is andrew at hawaiicourtreporters.com. It's a mouthful, but it's easy to spell. Andrew, thank you so much for your time today. You've given us a lot of good advice for syndicators. Make sure you talk about your reserves, your debt structure, your exit strategy, exit caps. A lot of great advice covered today. And thank you for sharing your investment journey with us today as well. Well, thanks for having me, Ash. I appreciate it. Best ever listeners, thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share the podcast with someone you think can benefit from it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day.